Learn.blamebarlet.com. Welcome to Office Hours, everyone. I'm David Meltzer. We are conducting a mindset mastermind as we speak. If you don't know what that is, reach out to my friend Blaine. It will change your life because it will change the way that you look at things, your mindset. And as our old friend, Dr. Wayne Dyer says, the things you look at will change, which leads me to a conversation to start off the show, Blaine. Um, I uh, have been a very intentional person for a long time. And looking at intention, I've realized that I haven't understood fully the five levels of intention, meaning initially I thought, okay, intention's what I do. And then you know, learning from some of my mentors, it's what I say. And then learning from more of my mentors, it's what I think. And then learning from even more of my mentors, it's what I believe. Taking me through, you know, Earl Nightingale and Wayne Dyer and, of course, Napoleon Hill. But now I'm to an intuition level. And it stems from this idea of I'm already connected to the all-knowing. And I've been interfering with this. And how do I reconcile my intuition, the way I feel with what I think, do, say, and believe, because sometimes they're not equating in my life and it causes confusion. Yeah. Uh, David, I think that's a great question. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll jump on, you know, just a, a meme that you've heard me talk about before. You know, energy will follow attention, which I don't think there's any argument about that. Most people don't know where their attention goes. It's, you know, it's subconscious. I mean, they're just paying attention to stuff that all the energy is sucked over there. So attention will direct energy. Now, what people don't understand is that intention, intention, which is a egoist, it's an egoic construct. Intention is formed out of, yeah, my belief system is formed out of uh, my desire for something that I'd like to have that I don't currently experience. So intention um, is a formative construct. So this is where the, it gets kind of interesting. Attention will, you know, energy will follow attention and intention will form energy. So the confusion comes into play where spirit is coming, you know, it uses me, spirit coming and moves to and through me and I'm a vessel. But if I'm blocking the, that, that you know, if there's friction and that friction comes into play when the ego begins to say it's supposed to be formed in a certain way, my intention is to, yeah, time frame, construct, that sort of thing. And how can I apply that to, you know, one of the uh, most sought after energies of uh, our pragmatic living, which is money, right? Money's an object of energy that we put into the flow to get what we want. And there's an old saying, you know, money doesn't lead, money follows. And when you talked about the energy following, I immediately thought about, oh, yeah, of course, that's why money follows as well. Uh, if energy follows intention, then money would follow our intention of what we want uh, materialistically because money would be the energy to obtain that. Um, how do you see money following what we do in our careers and having the patience to allow the money to follow where so many people create resistance by allowing money to lead them or energy to lead them or lead or guide their intention? Uh, well, you know, energy is uh, money and money is energy. You know, it's just it's just a form of energy. So <clears throat> I'll use a metaphor. Uh, a river is going to end up in the ocean in one way or another. It's going to end up in the, in, in the ocean. I can have an intention 
to um, have it go in a certain direction, but the flow of the energy, which is driven by what I'm going to call spirit here, it's it's got a it's got an energetic, uh, uh, it's got an energetic to it that is going to put it in a certain place. So if I put this in the context of money, energy is going to flow naturally. If I put myself in the context or in the position of being a center of distribution, which is what the universe is about. Nothing in, in the universe serves as a center of accumulation. And this is where I think we get ourselves backed up around money, is we think of money as something to be accumulated. Money isn't to be accumulated. Money is to be distributed as an energetic. And partly, and, and you are absolutely, I think, one of the finest exemplars that I can think of of this. Yeah, yeah. Make a lot of money. Have a lot of fun so I can do a lot of impact, do a lot of good for people. It flows through you. Now, you know, the more you actually have coming to you, you're going to be doing more with it. And it's, you know, and I know you well enough. I know you very well in this regard. It's in service of the natural flow of things. You, know, you, you pay more attention to, than just about anybody I know to what spirit is asking you to, yeah, to actually uh, orient towards. And it, it, it's kind of a compass sort of a thing. It's interesting you say that because one of the things that resonated with me years ago, and I think um, it may have been Bob Proctor uh, that said it, was he said something like if they took all the money in the world, dropped it into the desert, it would redistribute itself to the same people. <laughs> From what you just suggested, you know, how do we become one of those people that things redistribute themselves to? What are some of the pragmatic things that we should do so that we become the flow of energy? Uh, I think absolutely. And, I, and I've heard Bob say that before. Um, and what he's speaking about is the way that people's mindset works. And it's a law of attraction. It's a law of vibration. Yeah, so yeah, money's energy. It, yeah, money will go to where the energetic vi yeah, vibration matches. So if all the money in the world gets dropped into the middle of the desert, I need to have my vibrational set adjusted to the frequency that that money is tuned to. Now that seems abstract. It seems magical thinking and all that kind of bullshit. It's not. What it really is is, and this is the pragmatic piece of this. I start to function as a center of distribution. I see myself as a center of distribution, distribution of love, distribution of generosity, distribution of kindness, distribution of knowledge, distribution of information, distribution of money when it comes to me. When I see myself as a center of distribution, nature abhors a vacuum. So whatever I'm giving out is going to be coming back in. Yeah, when, when Cynthia and I, you know, when, we, when we spend money, it, it's always with a blessing. Because I know that the money I'm spending is going to go out, do good, and it will come back to me even more. There's this, there's this reciprocity, and it, and it just you know, continues to work in this fashion. You know, it's so interesting you say that because Cynthia, who's your wife, who's also the founder of Unstoppable Foundation, uh, which I'm blessed to be the chairperson of. Um, wife, I might remind you. <laughs> yeah, but it's 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 interesting because. Um, I remember at one of the galas, uh, you know, her perspective of giving. And it was one of the first catalysts of me understanding receiving uh, and the blessing it is to give. And uh, she 
shifted my paradigm of giving by saying, David, you know, because I was a little hesitant of asking people for money for the foundation. And she said, you're denying them an opportunity to feel good. You're denying them an opportunity of abundance. You're denying them the lesson that you've learned. You are actually creating separation and superiority because somehow you think that you aren't good enough or they're not good enough to give uh, and receive. And it was really an interesting change in my life that changed me. Anyway, the uh, incredible uh, Ben <laughs> been here. Ben is hey. here. Sorry for the delay there. I underestimated. I mean, I was coming into San Francisco. Um, I live on the peninsula. And of course, I underestimated nope. that reality. Yeah, no problem at all. We we always say never apologize for being late. Always say thank you for your patience. And yeah, there's a book. Energy. There's a book there's about a book that in there. called Thank You for Being Late. Yeah, I love that. I didn't yeah. know that. <laughs> well, Ben Harrison is the founder and general partner of Tenacity Venture Capital. We can see his tenacity, his consistent, persistent behavior of getting on here, even when our technology does not uh, 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 accommodate us. Um, but thank you so much uh, for joining us and congratulations on your new fund. And, thank you, uh, you know, it, it's, it's amazing because I always look at uh, funds and what their intentions are. We've been talking about intentions stalling for your genius. Um, <laughs> and, and when we're able to, you know, accumulate funds to distribute, which is what a fund does, uh, it has its own intention, a collective consciousness. What is the intention of your new fund uh, and what are you looking for? Sure, well, I mean, I named the fund Tenacity for a reason. I, I believe Tenacity is the only secret to entrepreneurial success um, in that genius is assumed or I would not have funded you. A great idea is assumed or I would not have funded you. And a huge market is assumed or once again, I would not have funded you. I always say I need five things to make an investment. People, 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 a great idea and a huge market if it works, okay? so. When you fund that and it fails, it is generally because the entrepreneur gave up. They did not fight through. Being an entrepreneur is, I mean, I was an entrepreneur for 25 years. Being an entrepreneur is the hardest job on the planet if you're not a first responder. I have an enormous amount of respect for people that put their lives at risk. But if you are working in a job that deals with a computer, a desk, an office, remote work, like there is nothing harder than being an entrepreneur. You wake up every morning, and the weight of every single person on your payroll is on your shoulders. Every contract, every deal, every tech release, it's all weighing down on you. Everything takes longer than you think. Everything costs more than you think. I mean, I have so many stories I share with entrepreneurs. Like I literally spent a year trying to land a customer, land them on a Friday on the phone, agreed to go pick up the contract on a Monday. He died that weekend. You know, it's it tragic <laughs> for him, but I'm like, a year in and I couldn't get my butt on a train at 5.30 at night on, in New York City and go to New Jersey to pick up the contract. And because of that, I'm not going to have to spend another six months figuring out who the heir is to this business. Like, it is just hard. And so if you are not willing to fight through, a friend of mine coined the term entrepreneur, the person that reads the stories in TechCrunch. Oh, I could have had an idea that was that good. Ideas are worthless. Execution <laughs> is what's dear. And so, you know, these folks, boys and girls, they think, oh, that's what I'm going to do. I'll just, you know, it's funny. Somebody uh, tweeted out uh, uh, a money hack. They said, okay, start a company, um, raise money, like, duh, like as if that's so easy. Uh, then loan money to all your employees to exercise their options, fail, foreclose on your employees' stuff, 
and sell it and then start over again. But it was, it, while it was very tongue in cheek and meant to be humorous, it's like, it's really hard. Success is the minority. Failure is what you should expect. Hope for the best, plan for the worst, know that your chance of failure is probably infinitely greater than your chance of success. I mean, we all fund whatever you want to call it, moonshots, right? Like I have a buddy that once said, I like this quote, we underwrite to one miracle, not two. We have to believe one miracle happens for a startup to survive and prosper. But we don't need to believe that two do. Those are passes. So, you know, it's I'm really looking for phenomenal founders. Uh, to put it quite simply, I look for founders that make me say, wow. And wow is a mix of who they are, where they came from, why I believe they're going to fight through, what their idea is, how they're going to change the world. I mean, I would I, I caught the bit on the, on the philanthropic side. I would love it if, if this fund does what I want it to do. It will give me the opportunity to be materially philanthropic in my later years. I am somewhat philanthropic now, but I don't have the capacity to be philanthropic at the level I would like to be. Um, I would love it if all of my LPs were people I could make money for that would do good in the world. That may or may not be true. They're all good people. And they're, they're no jerks. But, you know, so I just want to, I love, I was an entrepreneur for 25 years. I like to ride shotgun and live vicariously through other entrepreneurs. I will die an entrepreneur, but I'll be doing it in the sidecars of a hundred different founders. Love it. Yeah, I, I, I've got two questions. You know, first a comment and then a question that kind of comes off of this. I, I love the concept of an entrepreneur as a first responder. I've never heard them. I've really never heard anybody put it that way. It's, yeah, run towards the fire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess they're uh, business first responders, digital first responders. Yeah, exactly, because I've run into more guys and, and gals that will sit back and wait and just kind of go, well, yeah, I don't, I don't, just go. Just, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's nothing worse than failure to launch. You know, the overthinking entrepreneur PhD that polishes and polishes and polishes and never goes live. And then you run out of money while they're getting it perfect. I mean, we've all heard, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, running into the fire is a pretty good analogy because that is what you're doing. I mean, the number of people are going to tell you it's stupid and it's going to fail. I mean, I only have one partner. and He sometimes tells me why things won't work. And by the way, he might be right. We can't predict the future. We just, you know, in venture investing, your probability weighting outcomes because you can only lose one X and you can make 40 to 100 plus X, sometimes a lot more X. And uh, and that's how you figure it out. And along the way, a lot of fires run into. So, so we got people, 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 idea and execution. Right? People, 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 great idea. Great and idea. a huge market if it works. Huge market if it works. Okay, so the if it works piece is the execution side. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I, I could well, also just say a huge market, but yeah. you know, I always assume the risk of failure. So, so I, I have stopped funding brilliant entrepreneurs with bad ideas. Wow. I'm a fan of pivots. Um, they happen, and I'd rather have you pivot than give me my money back. If you spend 50 cents of the dollar and it fails to a level where there's no recovery, um, I don't want you to give me a refund. I want you to try something else. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to go in and fund you on the hope that you try something else. You know, that's not my game. Pivots very seldom work. So Ben, it's interesting with tenacity venture. Um, you know, I've been blessed to be around billionaires, millionaires, entrepreneurs, celebrities, athletes, and entertainers. And people ask me all the time, well, you know, what's the common denominator between all these hugely successful people? And I will tell them that there's one common denominator and that's the desire that they must be what they can be. They don't quit no matter no matter what they will sleep yeah. in their car they, they will go without food they and you know my critical question before we let you go is 
how the hell do we know someone has that desire? Yeah, it's a hard one, man. I, you know, so I used to do CrossFit religiously, then I stopped. Now I'm doing it again. And I used to think the best way I could possibly figure it out would be to, I mean, I can't do this because I think there's liabilities. Plus my coach won't let you go unless you've done a full day or a, you know, pre-training. But the thing about CrossFit as a workout routine is they make it really hard on you. And you look at the list of things you have to do that day and you're like, how the hell am I going to get that done? But they are okay with you stripping weight off the bar. There's always a way to scale it. The key is you finish. Sometimes I go in and somebody doesn't finish. Very rare. But they just sit down and stop. And then the coach is like, dude, take some weight off the bar. Like, I can't do it. He's like, then pick up a PVC pipe. They're like, no, no, I can't. I'm shot. That's the person I never want to fund. They were willing to not complete. They were willing to give up. But realistically, since I don't think I can do that, I just try to spend as much time with the entrepreneur as possible, hear as many of their stories as I can. I look for uh, sort of things that might be symptomatic of that drive. I have a, a, a guy that started a company. He was a animal rights activist in college, and he wanted to save the seas. And he realized that being an animal rights activist would not achieve that, but he could do it through commerce. So he started a plant-based tuna. It's called Current Foods that is so good that Nobu ordered it for their sushi menu. Okay, it's just like the real thing. Well, one of the things I discovered is that when he was in school in Texas, he got them to offer a vegan menu. You know, I got to believe that was not easy. I mean, I spent a lot of time in Texas. <laughs> like, you know, my, I have a lot of friends from Texas. These are not people lined up for vegan. You know, the response is not awesome. The response is like, move on, tofu boy. So, you know, like that was a symptom. Um Elite soldiers sometimes show up. That usually you, you check that box immediately. Although sometimes here's the problem: I once funded um, a leader of a, a, a Green Beret battalion. I was so impressed with him, but he spent so much time trying to manage, and he didn't bother to try to lead. It was terrible. I remember, you know, my rule of my entrepreneurs was always: I have to see you once a quarter. You can see me as many times as you want. And we were sitting down, and he's like, oh, "I'm having trouble with this. I'm in trouble with that." I'm like. Why are you asking me questions about this stuff? He's like, well, when I went to HBS, they taught me blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, dude, hold on a second. There are 18 people in your company. Do you think I funded you to manage 18 people? Do you think this is the division of GE? I don't care what they taught you at Harvard. You're a leader. Lead your people. You're fighting a ground war to cover the United States with your service. Act like it. Like, you know, if you want to get a job at GE, you should have. You shouldn't have raised money to be an entrepreneur. That company didn't make it because he could never tip back over from what he learned at Harvard to what he should have been doing as a leader, in my opinion. He's now got a lifestyle business, more power to him, but I was very let down. I mean, he was a tenacious son of a bitch. I mean, you don't make it through those programs unless you're a tenacious no. son of a bitch, and yet he was able to turn it off. I don't, I don't get that. I, I can't tell you how many great entrepreneurs that I funded that either were homeless or lived in their car. Oh yeah, or they you know, were. I, 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 I will. Someone tells me, well, you know, I had to live in my car, and now I do this and this. I'm like, well, this person, because I always say, your skills and knowledge determine your basement. Uh, your desire determines your your ceiling, your potential. And so I want someone's basement yes. to, to represent yeah. something. You know, when you get these entitled uh, Harvard grads, you know, th their basement is so high. That you know, they're they're the guy. Yeah. That, you know, I'm done. I'm not. I don't need to strip this off. And although they're extremely talented, uh, you know, they just don't have what it takes. Um, anyway, we have to have you back. Technology limited us of your genius. I can tell. You can tell stories uh, with the best of us, and you have yeah. plenty more to tell us. So we're gonna have you back. 
Uh, we have other shows as well, uh, Ben, but your wisdom, your knowledge, and I love the tenacity uh, capacity that yeah. you have in your venture fund. And thank you. I put, I put my money in your fund because you share the same belief system I do. Uh, I appreciate what it. it takes. I want to give I want to give you kudos to one thing you said because I believe in it wholeheartedly. I think, and this I'm going to paraphrase, but I've always said there is something inside you that you need to be. That is what I want to discover. And if you're driving for that thing that's big enough, that's what I want to back. Because what you say, that's eh, a billion dollar opportunity. You know, whatever you've been taught that. What do you need? What do you need to do to be viewed as a success? What do you need to do so that when you wake up in the morning, you feel you have done what you were put here to do? That is what we fund. Beautiful. Exactly. That's what I. That's what I felt when Stanford rejected me twice. I'm going to show you guys. So <laughs> you're like nicer version of Vinod Kosla. There you go. Yeah. Sadly, I wouldn't say as many good things, but <laughs> well, you know, graduating from Stanford is the number one uh, common denominator of getting funded in the Silicon Valley. So that, that's the one attribute that's most common to, just to give Stanford their props. But thank you for. Oh, no, they've done a great job. I went to Babson and, you know, they way predated Stanford for entrepreneurial training, but Stanford's taken all the oxygen out of the room on that one. Yeah, no shit. They do a good job. Babson's a great school. I love speaking there uh, as well to entrepreneurs. You nailed it. I can see that now. Uh, that background definitely is shining through. Uh, ben, we'll have you back on. Ben Harrison, check it out. General partner, Tenacity Venture Capital. Thank you. you and must if be what you can be. Pitch me, pitch-ben.com. I take 100% of those pitches and I give them responses. It's all video. Please send them our way. We yeah. got a pitch show on Bloomberg and, and uh, Apple TV called two, uh, our two-minute drill pitch show, $50,000 of cash and prizes. So we'll share our leads with each other. Sweet. Okay. I always have plenty. It takes a long time to go through the pitch dash Ben videos. I'll tell you that, but I enjoy it. All right. Take care. Very nice to have been on. I look forward to doing it again. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks Ben. We appreciate you. <laughs> what a, a true, that you just, what a true entrepreneur. That's all I got to say. Great yeah. lessons there. Um, all right. Energy. Let's, let's see where we're at here. I assume Rajiv, uh, Matt is coming on. Is that right? On you? Hey, how are you, Dave? Rajiv, I'm doing Dave. great. How are you? Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us as always. We'd uh, love to get a little background on what you got going on. Well, first of all, you have a small world story. Guess who I office next to like four doors that way? No idea. Lee. Oh, so you're by Billy's there in Newport Beach. Yeah. Yeah. Lee Lee had a big, big week. We shared a couple of stages together and he had a terrific party at the Super Bowl. Lee Steinberg is the founder of the company I was CEO of and a tremendous uh, leader in sports agentry. So what a blessing it must be to be by one of my great mentors. Yeah, he's great. We, we had a nice walk the other day, just walking and chatting about my new book and everything. And he loved it. And he put it on his, his he had me put it on his uh, Facebook group page. So it was great. Uh, it was awesome. So I just thought this was funny and an opportune. And uh, you're also good friends with my buddy, Brian Kendrella, who you're going to be, uh, well, yeah, you know, Brian, right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're yeah. surrounding yourself with the right people and the right ideas. Uh, share with us what you have going on, though, Rajiv. No, thanks for asking. So, you know, look, um, when COVID hit, Dave, I so I, I've been running a B2B media and marketing company for the last seven and a half years, kind of private equity back situation, great company. But when COVID hit, Dave, we, and Blaine, we lost 50% of our revenue overnight because half, half my business was face-to-face events. And so we had to pivot really fast and we did. 
and we did virtual. We were probably one of the first companies to go virtual. It was quite amazing. And I got to tell you something, we ended up having our second best year ever. And last year we had our best year ever from an EBITDA profitability perspective. It was amazing. So even though we were half the size, we were we became a cash generating machine. Margins went from 55% to the 80, 90% range. I mean, it was great. But something was missing. And that was, I needed, I was spending so much of my time on work. I, I was, my health started suffering a little bit and my mental wellness started suffering too, right? And so you wake up a little bit with sometimes, as you know, you get this imposter syndrome stuff. Like, am I really the right guy for this? You know, can I really do this? Like what's going on? And so I needed something for my, my own mental wellness. And so uh, apart from running the business, I uh, decided to write this book that I always, this, this idea I had in my mind for a book on leadership and how leadership needed to change and how leadership needed to evolve. Because over the next three years, as you guys know, the majority of the workforce is going to be Gen Z, millennial, and in that, it's going to be women. Yep. Right? And so they speak a whole different language. So let's play a quick game. What does the word cop mean to you guys? Male rooster. Cop. <laughs> C-O-P. Cop. 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 Policeman. Oh, cop. Policeman. Yeah, no, but you know what it means to Gen Z and millennials? It means to acquire something. I'm going to oh, cop that item. Yeah. Huh. Right? So um, the word drip, you know that word drip means now? No. The word drip means new clothing. I'm, I, I, just, I just dripped this new shirt from Tommy Bahamas or from wherever. Drip. I got this new clothing. I got drip. I got new drip, right? I mean, they speak this whole language. It's kind of like when we were like in the 80s, right, growing up and bad was bad man good. So, <laughs> so, so my point is everything evolved, right? So I had this concept for this book about how, how leadership needs to change. And I wrote it and you know, I talk about how it goes beyond that. It talks about how this generation coming up is really into what I call the Jedi. And that's just the Star Wars nerd in me, which is they really want to understand justice, environment, diversity, inclusion. And I, I took this concept to Dean Garrett, the new dean over at the USC Marshall Business School. He's the guy that built Wharton. And I'm sure you probably have heard of him. And, and we were talking about it. He goes, Rajiv, you're right, because it just is happening. There's nothing anybody can do to stop it. Not Elon Musk, not you, not me, not none of us. Nothing we do to stop it. So we have to prepare this current Gen X world that this is what's coming. And if they want their company to survive, they have to be able to embrace something beyond just this typical servant leadership role. And I coined it as enlightened leadership to tell people and leaders, guys, you, you cannot just have a world anymore where you're just leading people, getting them focusing on the walls of the business. It's, they also want to know how you can help them outside the walls of the business. And that was the idea of enlightened leadership. So I wrote that book. It took me a while and uh, we published it back in November and it became the, it became the number one most downloaded leadership book on Amazon in November and December. And it was great and getting great reviews and uh, following your footsteps a little bit. And uh, I know I helped Gary V and everybody, but uh, I've got my first YPO speaking gig coming up in May. I'm a YPO member and I've done a couple of other small little keynotes. So, so that's what I've been doing. And then on the side, I wrote a movie script. And so that, 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 that's got some nice little promise. And you know, so we'll see what happens with that. So that's what I've been up to apart from running an amazing little business here and with, with a great team. So that's what I've been up to. Wow. That's a full portfolio. <laughs> Yeah, I love the, uh, the the tagline on your book, Chase Greatness uh, and Light Leadership. But here's the, you know, the piece that I really am, am, am struck by. For the next generation of disruption. For the next generation. Yeah, I think that absolutely nails it. Yeah, I mean, look, mo it, look, you guys know, right? Most companies fail not because, and I tell people this, 
most companies and teams fail not because they did the wrong thing. They fail because they did the right thing for too long. Right. And that doesn't matter if you're in business, if you're playing football, whatever the case might be. Right. If you just keep running the same plays over and over and over again, you're, you're going to fail. Right. And the world is littered with the blockbusters of the world. We all know the story how Blockbuster ran the Netflix guys out of the room. Right. We all we all know all those fun stories. Right. We all know how Border said, no, e-commerce is never going to work. You know, so we all know all that stuff. Right. But this is going to be critical. Right. You have everything. Look at what's coming. What I what I hypothesize, and I think I'm right is you have something happening for the first time in history. You have you have this enlightened period. So think of the old age of enlightenment, right? With everything happening, look at side hustles that are blowing up over here, right? There are more side hustle applications, new, new, new entrepreneur applications popping. There's more of that happening over the last 12 months than in all of history combined, right? So you have this whole kind of age of enlightenment period happening over here with young Gen Zers, right? You have this Technology industrial revolution happening as well with AI, IoT, robotics, electric cars, advancement in science and medicine, all this money that all these drug companies have made off the pandemic. They're putting that money, they're gonna put that money into new. They, I heard, you know, for example, over the last just one week, the third person got cured of HIV, uh, uh, right? Uh, the, I saw the other day that the third person got a chip implanted into their spine, they can now walk again. Right. So that's just today. Imagine what that's going to be like in 10, 15, 20 years down the road. So you have the enlightenment thing happening. You have the industrial revolution, technology revolution happening. And then you have a changing workforce. And that's the first time all three have kind of collided at the same time. And so we as leaders have to understand that. And then we have to understand that not only does this young generation speak a different language, they also want a different type of leader to work for. And that's, by the way, what's driving this great resignation, a great realignment is because this Gen Z and millennials are finding out that the companies they work for beyond the money, they just don't align to the same values that they have or that they want to have. And I'm not saying everybody, right? I'm just saying the majority. And so that's going to be important to see. You know, I think you, yeah, go ahead, Dave. I was going to say just uh, to, to bring on and, and uh, to keep you know on schedule because I think there's just one thing, right? Understanding you know where Rajiv sits as you and I completely separate from truly knowing, right? I have three teenage daughters and uh, I think overall you have to have this ignorant, humble uh, experience with all this information that, you know, we now are old enough to know one thing. We don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this idea of being an intelligent follower, uh, a a merchant servant or a a servant leader, even though it may not align with everyone, it certainly is the approach that we're going to need to take in order to assimilate and reconcile all three of these different components that have never merged in history. And I really find it fascinating, Rajiv, that, you know, someone like you or Blaine or myself are in this position now uh, where we're sitting here on a Thursday afternoon, digitally speaking about this reconciliation that's occurring. And it's more of our generation, I think, needs to make that perception change than it does the young people needing to change because they will change uh, they'll learn uh, but we have to unlearn which you know this cancel culture and all the other things i keep on suggesting to our generation hey quit resisting this you just have to unlearn a few things you, yeah, not just words you just have to unlearn a few things yeah, you to, we are where our parents were back in the 80s and early 90s right so we, we just dress better 
Right. We just dress better. Exactly. Like we, <laughs> we, we don't walk around with briefcases either, right? So except for Lee. Tell me Lee doesn't have that old briefcase he was walking around with. He still wears his briefcase. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't see him with the briefcase, but we were out enjoying the weather together. It was beautiful. And a nice sunny day, as you know, this area over here. But yeah, no, it's been great. The book's been awesome. It's called Chase Greatness. And Chase it's been Greatness. wonderful. And you know, look, I, I just am really excited about getting the message out because I really think it's 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 a game changer in terms of the way people need to think about the evolution of leadership if they want their businesses to survive long term. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, the idea, you know, the way that I define the leadership in the work that I do, just real quick here, I know we're moving to the next guest, and the idea of co-creating coordinated movement in the system that produces the results that you say you want, there's two pieces to that, the coordinated movement, which most people understand, it's the doingness, it's the execution piece, but the co-creation piece, and this is, I think, really where uh, Chase Greatness is, is uh, you know, actually beginning to speak to, I can't co-create just from my orientation, my worldview. I have to know your worldview if I'm going to be able to co-create this new reality that we say that we want to have with each other. And particularly if we're looking at you know, enhancing lives and making the world a better place, because that is what this new generation is organizing around from the value point. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Blaine. And you know the cool thing here is the bottom line? It boils down to culture, and we throw that word around a lot. It's kind of willy-nilly the way we throw the word around. But here's the thing. 90% of CEOs say culture is important. Only 10% do anything about it. Exactly. If you go do anything about it right now, you may not have your business in the next two or three years. Yep. And that's what's critical, right? Yep. And, and that's what your, you know, your book is so critical for all generations to take a look at and to adhere to some of the principles that need to be relearned unlearned and re-engineered and we appreciate you receive you're a neighbor of ours so we definitely want to get together again especially oh, yeah, absolutely my, my pleasure i look I'm forward sure to you guys beautiful view over your left shoulder so uh <laughs> i've been in your building thanks yep. guys thank you for joining us check him out as well as his website rajivkapoor.com all right we are back on schedule blaine we're so all blessed right. to have these amazing people uh, both, I felt, you know, time restraint. Uh, I'm always too short on time. Uh, but Alvin Poe is here, CEO of Superscaling and an incredible author, superscaling.com. His book available everywhere on Amazon, Superscaling. Systemize, break free, skyrocket your business uh, to millions. Uh you look a lot younger than you really are there, Alvin. Um, but hey guys. <laughs> you, you've had a pretty significant exit. Uh, you know something about Thank scaling. You. I think it's more important now to understand how to scale a business because things are accelerating so fast. The faster things change, the more we have to understand scalability because if we don't, we're going to miss out on where the margins lie, where the market lies, and where being a market maker would have its opportunity how did you learn uh, to scale, you know, at such a young age? Because usually it takes some failure, setbacks and mistakes to get to a point where you have the situational knowledge to know how or have the foresight to play chess instead of checkers yeah. Yeah. and scale your business with 35,000 clients in a team of 150 people before your eight figure exit. Well, you got that right, David. Um, it really was a process of going through the hard knocks, learning on the on the job as it is as it were um i started my business when i was 17 years old and at that point of time uh, my co-founder and myself we didn't know anything at all 
And there were so many limiting beliefs. There were so many mistakes that we had to make before we knew what worked, before we found out how systems were important, before we figured out how to get our business to the next level. So it was a process of, of you know, literally going through the school of hard knocks. And I remember like one of my limiting beliefs at that point as, as a you know, teenager, entrepreneur, uh, were all the limiting beliefs that I had as a kid where you know, uh, my family, they really prioritized and told me the importance of hard work and you know, putting in time and effort into whatever you do. And as an as a entrepreneur, that's, that's a great attitude, but taken the right way, um, when I was starting my business, I thought that meant that you had to do the work uh, all by yourself. And so that limited my growth so much when it came to uh, managing a team, when it came to growing a team. I remember one of the, the, the bottlenecks of the, the business was literally me. I had to overcome those beliefs before I could effectively uh, manage people, leverage on people, and use a team to help the organization get to its objectives. And that was such a big... Uh, game changer and such a such a big thing to change so yeah that 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 literally was like my journey it was really going through all these experiences myself before i knew uh, and figured out how to really scale up businesses yeah yeah you know, in, in our previous guest guest album i mentioned co-creating coordinated movement and what you've just done is describe that discovery process that I think a lot of founders end up going through is yeah. how do I begin to rely on my team? I don't have to do it all myself. And if you've recruited well, you've got people that have bought into your idea. They share to a significant degree your passion. Now they just need to be let loose. Exactly. And get out of their way. Let yeah. them. You get out of the way. The co-creation. <laughs> But, but that's a, that is a difficult thing for a founder to do. And for somebody, and I'm very familiar with the Asian culture. I've, I've spent years uh, working in China and Japan. Um, so the hard work, the, you know, just put your nose down and just, you know, how did you specifically find yourself moving away from that mindset to being able to trust yourself that you can handle the consequences, real or imagined, of letting your team run with it. Sometimes you've just got to be battered down enough before you realize there's no choice but to embrace that. Uh, I'm sure a lot of uh, the listeners have gone through this before as well, where there's so much work coming from all directions. There's responsibilities and commitments everywhere. And every everything that... You know, something that all of us share is the same 24 hours in a day. And that's something that I faced. Like there literally was absolutely no more time that I could squeeze out of my day. And I just found myself working on every single task. And when I looked at the future of the business back then, this must have been uh, maybe the early or the mid 2000s. And I simply couldn't cope with it. I simply couldn't see a future in which I was doing all this by myself and the business was still growing. Uh, that, that was a, 
highly, highly stressful time because the more the business grew, the more stressed out I got and the worse I felt. So it was literally all that coming together that made me realize that there was no way I could really go on like that. And, and I, I just, it was, it was probably like a, a epiphany that, that showed me that, you know, something had to change. And I realized it was a question that I was asking myself. Uh, the question that I was asking myself was, how do I solve this? And how do I do that? And how do I, it's, it's I, 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 I. But the real question that business owners and entrepreneurs should ask ourselves is, how do we solve this? And bring in the concept of leverage, bring in the concept of uh, using the strengths of your team, uh, using processes and systems, and having that leverage to bring your business uh, much higher. So that's, that's, that's how I discovered it. Uh, it's a painful process and hopefully I, I, can, I can show entrepreneurs that you know, this is something that they can avoid in their process of scaling up. You know, it's so interesting. As a last question, Alvin, um, it's so interesting because we talk about systemizing and they look to a leader like yourself on how we systemize. But if we look back in history, you know, it's interesting a certain word comes to mind as a leader of scaling businesses. And I've been blessed to scale a business from four people to 7,000 people in my sales force in my 20s. And one of my mentors said to me, David, you cannot demand when you want to scale. Uh, there's a reason they call it the 10 commandments, not the 10 demandments. Uh, <laughs> because the word command means to work with. And in order to systemize things, it would be impossible for you to have the situational knowledge, the experience, pay the dummy tax and have the relationships necessary to create the efficiencies, effectiveness and statistical success of a system that can be replicated. And that's what scaling is, is do we have, and now today with AI and now today with the technologies, it's even more important to command and work with people. And, you know, all the great leaders in my company today, as we scaled to, you know, an enormous size of what we're capable of doing, part of the scalable processes is not 7,000 people anymore. It's having one or two of these critical commanders working with not only human beings, but technology uh, and picking and choosing where the capabilities of AI and systems that have already been created allow us to scale. And we have a capacity worldwide to have a bigger market. Um, for you, in this commandment mentality that was forced upon you through, as you said, torture, um, how has technology played a role in the scalable systemization that you teach in your book? How do we scale not only with human beings, but with technology? So when I, when I say systems, a lot of uh, people think that it has absolutely got to do with technology. Technology is great. And it's, it's a big part of what I do. I'm, I'm a technology entrepreneur myself, um, but technology doesn't necessarily need to be part of your systemizing, your scalability. Um, I think people can start with the things that don't scale as well first. You know, even pen and paper could work. Uh, it's the mentality, it's the mindset, it's really coming up with the processes um, to establish 
these systems. And as I talk about it in my book, systems are literally just a way to replicate results. When a business and an organization, a team is able to do that consistently, then they've really understood the, pro the process of systemizing. And that's when they can start embracing technology. I see technology as a great augmentation um, you know, tool, not necessarily a solution, uh, which is what entrepreneurs tend to, to view technology as. So I would consider technology only if they've gotten all the fun fundamentals and the foundations right. Um, and that requires so much. That requires a shift in mindset. That requires coming out with that, that vision, that culture that binds everybody together. Uh, that's, that that, that uh, involves coming out with a team, creating uh, an, an environment in which a team can do their best work together, uh, creating like a customer journey that the customer is now turned into a raving fan of the business. The customer not only just buys one time, but also renews and refers, um, you know, and then making sure everything is well optimized. So uh, that are the fundamentals of a business. I feel that if, if people don't, don't get there yet, it's, it's really hard to bring technology into the mix and expect technology to work. But when a business has all that in place and it's rock solid, now technology comes in and it's no longer just a solution, uh, but it's like fuel for their growth. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's when you can really, really see the results. Yeah, I love that perspective. People, people, people. Superscaling.com, learn how to scale in a super way. Find profits, find time, find freedom. Uh, utilize this book and mentorship by Alvin Poe. He's done it himself at a very young age. Thank you so much, Alvin, for joining us. Everybody check out superscaling.com. Systemize through the extraordinary empowerment of people. I love it. And I love your mindset. I was waiting for you to tell me you read some book, but sometimes life will give you the mindset you need to be successful. Congratulations. Thanks, guys. Alvin, great having you on the show. Thank you. Thanks. All right. We did it, Blaine. Hey, brought her home. Exactly. I can, At least I can, I can see home plate, home plate from here. You wouldn't even imagine how many episodes we've had already. It would make you feel old. Uh, 309. Um, 309 episodes of Office Hours. Uh, that doesn't even include the TV show, which right. is 72 uh, different episodes or whatever it comes to with all the guests that we have, which, which we're filming tomorrow, filming every Friday. You're going to check what I think's the MVP. This guy I was telling yesterday, Blaine Bartlett, learn.blamebartlett.com you think he's good here check him out on tv because he brings it to a next level he's a game time player he's one of those guys that he may be an all-star during the season but he brings it to the next level in the playoffs and if you consider our tv show the playoffs he certainly was uh, an mvp so blaine thank you so much for joining real quick takeaway take of the day takeaway we started with energy i'm gonna i'm gonna work with energy um, first guest, you know, we're talking about intensity. Uh, then we started just kind of taking a look at just kind of how things are put together. I mean, all of this stuff is all about energy. Yeah. How does it move? What constrains it? I loved Alvin saying, I'm the bottleneck. Yeah. Awareness. Awareness is the first key. And when I'm talking about awareness, what I want to become aware of is where do I block or open up the access to the spirit that moves to and through me? 
I'm used as a vehicle. And I want to be able to be aware of where that access is blocked or open. Oh, my gosh. I love that. And mine's real simple. People, people, people. Uh, I was blown away by all three of our great entrepreneurs. And they all stressed. I All three of them, I was expecting them to go somewhere else. You know, and they all went back to this collaborative, coordinated teaching of Lane of Blaine Bartlett that, you know, in the end, it's people that create and co-create and we have to learn to collaborate and coordinate to co-create. And so that's my takeaway of the day. And speaking of people, 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 I'm so blessed that you are the people, people, people in my life uh, and, and on this show. We've taken it to the next level over 300 of them. You blew me away, my friend. I will see you in Vegas on the TV show. I'll see you at lunch. I'll see you at lunch before then as well. So everyone, let's give a big round of applause for my friend, Blaine Bartlett. Learn.blainebartlett.com forward slash LMM. Join him on the Mindset Mastermind. Thanks so much. Love you, buddy. Love you, man. Have fun. All right. Tomorrow's training, 7 a.m. We got BYOQ. You bring the questions. I'll bring the answers. We're still campaigning for the world's most interested man. One time, David Meltzer asked over 100 open-ended questions just to find out what was bothering Matt. Yes, that's true. I'm one of the world's most interested men. Not interesting. But remember, most importantly, if you're going to join us on office hours, on training, on two-minute drill, or any other place, book stages, or coaching, you got to be kind to your future self. Today's the random acts of kindness day. So... Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We love you all. My email is david at dmeltzer.com. Reach out if you need anything. Thank you.